Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I news 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War I now, news and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. Today is May 17, 2017, and I'm Teo Mayer, Chief Technologist for the World War I Centennial Commission and your host. We've gone back in time 100 years, and the United States government launches the official bulletin, the country's war information newspaper. It's published daily under the order of the President of the United States and published by the Committee on Public Information, George Creel Chairman. Now, we introduced you to George Creel previously. Creel is a journalist, friend, and staunch supporter of Woodrow Wilson, especially during the election of 1916. So it's not surprising that President Wilson appoints Creel to head the newly minted Committee on Public Information, the CPI, as a part of the new war effort. The CPI's mission is to swing public sentiment and backing in favor of the U.S. war effort. Effectively, George Creel is the head of America's Propaganda and War Information Bureau. This includes all aspects of U.S. media, including print, film, posters, music, paintings and cartoons, everything. One of the key products of the CPI is the official bulletin. Largely forgotten and gone unnoticed in the century since, but starting this week, we're republishing each issue of this daily historical newspaper on the centennial date of its original release. This archive is a wonderful cultural resource that illuminates this dynamic period in our country's history. Fortunately, the entire archive has been digitized by Google Books, and we're very excited to bring it to you as a daily serial on our website at www.cc.org bulletin, all lowercase. The editorial team at World War I Centennial News is going over the 120 or so weekly articles, and we're going to bring you some of the interesting headlines and dig into some of the stories. This week, some of the headlines read, Urgent Need of Ships for Coastal Defenses Outlined. This article includes an interesting note. A number of the finest yachts in the country have been tendered to the government by the owners for use during the war, either free or on a nominal lease basis. In another part of the article, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy writes, We need coastal defenses. The present war is showing that the submarine is a weapon that has an important bearing on the final results. Now that astute Assistant Secretary of the Navy in 1917 will become the 32nd President of the United States in 1933, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Another headline reads, Mission to Russia. The Department of State authorizes the members of the Special Diplomatic Mission of the United States of America to go to Russia, our close allies during this war. Another headline, Registration Distinct from Draft. Statement by War Department explains. This is an article that explains that all young men between the ages of 21 and 30 must register for the draft. But registration being completely different than being drafted, and that's a separate issue. This is the first selective service moment in our nation's history, and there's a lot of interest and confusion about how it works. In fact, in the May 12, 1917 issue of the Official Bulletin, there's a great article looking at the number of young men in the U.S. who will be expected to, quote, selective conscription. 
In the article, they estimate that around 10 million young men between the ages of 21 and 30 need to register. And that's about 10% of the U.S. estimated population of 103 to 104 million in 1917. Based on state populations, they're looking for around a million men from New York, 875,000 from Pennsylvania, half a million from Illinois, Texas, and Ohio. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that the U.S. had virtually no national military. In fact, the state militias totally outnumbered the federal army. The building of that army is a story that we're going to cover over the coming weeks. Joining us now is former NPR correspondent Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. This week, Mike also focuses on the domestic struggle to get a handle on what it means now that we've declared war. Mike, it sure doesn't sound like the nation is of a single mind on this, does it? Not at all, Teo. It was a real battle at this point. These are some of the headlines. A volunteer army or the draft. Confusion from the president and Congress. Wilson favors draft. Congress against. And this is special to the Great War Project. Early in April 1917, the United States declares war on Germany, but from Woodrow Wilson on down, American leaders display an enormous naivete about what the declaration of war actually means. In the early spring, a century ago, according to historian Thomas Fleming, the U.S. Army numbers only 127,000, roughly the same size as the Army of Chile, and far fewer of them have the training, experience, and stamina needed to fight in the trenches of Europe. As many as half had never had an hour's drill, Fleming writes. Soon after Wilson's speech declaring war on Germany, a War Department official testifies before Congress that the Army needs $3 billion, a stupendous amount at the time, writes Fleming. In a Senate committee hearing, a representative of the War Department is asked how the Army intends to spend such a huge amount. He begins to list all of the military's needs, building training camps, purchasing rifles and artillery, and aircraft. Then comes the shocker, and we may have to have an Army in France. Good Lord, one senior senator blurts out, you're not going to send soldiers over there, are you? writes Fleming, few comments better exemplified the almost incredible naivete that underlay the U.S. decision to declare war on Germany. Are the Americans going to send troops to France? Nobody, reports Fleming, nobody seemed to have a clue. Wilson added to this overall impression by insisting that the United States had not joined the Allies as an ally, but as an associated power. Initially, Wilson and other political leaders favor creating an army of volunteers, but then in May a century ago, Wilson and his Secretary of War changed their position to favor conscription. This prompted sharp disagreement in the Senate, with a majority of senators opposing conscription and supporting a volunteer system. Wilson had failed to convince a majority in the Senate of the need for a draft. In the House, the Speaker delivered a fiery denunciation of a draft, writes Fleming. I protest with all of my heart and mind and soul, the Speaker declares, against having the slur of being a conscript. A Georgia senator even introduces a Bill Fleming reports that barred draftees from serving overseas. Throughout the South, the idea of drafting Negroes and putting guns in their hands caused widespread hysteria, Fleming reports. One senator predicted the streets would run red with blood if Congress voted for conscription, or at least if the U.S. did not try a volunteer system first. Former President Theodore Roosevelt jumped into the debate with all his rhetorical powers. Roosevelt opposed the draft and vehemently supported a volunteer system, and he goes to the White House to tell Wilson so. Wilson is not thrilled by this visit from Roosevelt, but he listens politely, Fleming reports. 
It just may be that Roosevelt helped Wilson solidify his support for a draft. The historical record indicates that Roosevelt's push for a volunteer division played a crucial role in Wilson's decision to back the draft. Thank you, Mike. Great post. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. Let's take a look at the Great War in the Sky 100 years ago this week. Our story is about the first Allied flying boat that manages to down a German Zeppelin. What is a flying boat? Well, it's different from a pontoon seaplane that has floats replacing or in addition to landing gear. Instead, flying boats are like ship hulls with wings. Now, they have pontoons on the outside of the wings to stabilize them when they land and take off, but... They're a really desirable concept because they can be big and they can use really long distances to take off and land. That works because they don't need a runway to operate. They just need a reasonably calm body of water. The Curtis H series is America's leading flying boat design in World War I. In fact, you might remember a few weeks ago when Michael Lombardi, Boeing senior historian, came in and told us about one of the early contracts Boeing had to build some Curtis H series flying boats under license. Well, 100 years ago this week, a Canadian flyer, Robert Lakey, is tooling around on patrol in the North Sea near Amsterdam with his flight commander, John Galpin. It's a nasty, rainy, bad day and the clouds are really low, but around 4.45 a.m., the weather breaks and they spot a big German Zeppelin, the L-22, about 10, 15 miles away. So they give chase and sneak up on her. The flight commander, Lieutenant Galpin, gives Lakey the controls and goes to man the twin Lewis guns. They get to within a half a mile before the Zepp spots them, but by then it's too late. Lakey dives down on her like a hawk as Galpin unloads an entire drum of incendiary bullets into the Zeppelin, which catches fire and crashes into the sea. The tiny wasp has stung the giant beast and prevailed. It's a win for the Allies and a loss of a precious Zeppelin for the Germans. Lakey is given the Distinguished Service Cross and Galpin the Distinguished Service Order for their action 100 years ago this week in the Great War in the Sky. Let's move on to our friends from the Great War Channel on YouTube. Now, they've produced a library of over 400 videos about World War I. The videos provide detailed insights, and some of them provide great summaries and overviews. If you want to explore World War I on video, we recommend the Great War Channel on YouTube. This week, the new episodes include, 100 years ago this week, the Macedonian standoff, the five-nation armies repelled and another episode, which is a special shot on location in France with the Dutch development team from the Battle of Verdun video game. They explore the validity, or not, of teaching about World War I with video game technology. This is a really interesting discussion. Follow the link in the podcast notes to see the shows. We've moved forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now, news about the centennial and the commemoration. We'll begin with some breaking news from the World War I Centennial Commission. As you know, surprisingly, there is no national World War I memorial in our nation's capital. We're very happy to report that on May 18, our concept and design for the National World War I Memorial at Pershing Park in Washington, D.C. received concept approval from Washington's Commission of the Fine Arts, the CFA, a body that needs to approve everything being built in the nation's capital. 
We offer congratulations to the World War I Centennial Commission Vice Chair, Edwin Fountain, who's been leading the charge on this, the designers of the concept, Joe Weishar and Sabin Howard, and the entire World War I Memorial Project team that have worked tirelessly to adapt the project vision to the input and requests of the CFA. We're now clear to proceed with our mission to honor the World War I Doughboys with their own national memorial in Washington, D.C., and just in time for Memorial Day, too. So now we're asking you, our audience, to help us with a little peer-to-peer -peer fundraising. It's really easy for you to help. Some great people have recorded special Memorial Day 22nd donation appeal videos for us. You can help by posting them on your website and social media pages asking to support this important centennial project. We have 20-second videos specifically for Memorial Day from former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta, former U.S. Senator and Ambassador Carol Mosley Braun, the step-granddaughter of General of the Army's Blackjack Pershing, Sandra Sinclair Pershing, retired Army General, news commentator and business consultant, General Barry McCaffrey, and tech guru, internet pioneer, and Google Senior Fellow, Vinton Cerf. All you need to do is to post these videos on your Facebook page, your website, and your other social media channels to tell your friends about the project, asking them to support our World War I veterans. You can find the videos and lots of other great resources at www.cc.org promotion. Please do it today. Memorial Day is coming up on May 29th. Help us build a National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. And thank you. On to activities and events, starting with a live stream from the ABMC, the American Battle Monuments Commission. On Tuesday, May 16, two American Battle Monuments historians talked about photos from their collections in the ABMC's first Facebook Live chat. They discussed Memorial Day in 1919 and the role of photography in remembrance and commemoration of the First World War. You can watch the video of the event on their Facebook page. We put a link in the podcast notes and congratulations to the ABMC on your first Facebook live stream. We're looking forward to many more. In Wilton, Connecticut, the Wilton Library will be holding a World War I Memorabilia Digitization Day on Saturday, May 20th. Community members can stop by to have their stories recorded and keepsakes scanned, photographed, and digitized. The results will be added to the State Library's Remembering World War I Digital Project. They'll be focusing on warfront-related, homefront-related, and other war efforts. The library has teamed with the Connecticut State Library, American Legion Post 86, and the Wilton Historical Society to produce the event. And as we've been leading up to for the past few weeks, it's time for Peanuts, Cracker Jack, Baseball, and World War I Veterans Remembrance Days. With us today is the president of the East Coast's International League, Mr. Randy Mobley. Randy, you've been such a great supporting partner in this program for the World War I commemoration. Thank you and welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Teo, for having me. Now, Randy, your league is supporting a dozen games with World War I remembrances between now and Memorial Day. How, how did that come about? Well, it was an interesting start in that uh, Roger Fisk from the commission 
had previously worked with the president of one of our teams when he was the president of a team outside of Washington, D.C. And I was approached by Roger and the president of our now Scranton-Wilkesbury team about the possibility of involving our teams with the effort of the commission. So it started innocently enough and several conversations and uh, email exchanges later. We've got 10 of our teams on board, and as you say, during uh, the coming days, they'll be honoring World War I veterans and providing other opportunities for education of our fans and just generally developing a relationship between our two constituencies. Well, Randy, it's a really great program. You've got a good audience and a, it's a great time of year for this as well because at the ballpark it's kind of relaxed and people can spend time enjoying with their family. What are some of the events that are happening? Well, you're right, Teo, and the ballparks truly are a community gathering place and we'll draw over 7 million fans over the course of this coming summer to our ballparks. And it's an opportunity for not only our teams to get involved, but through the commission, the various state agencies and chapters and organizations. And each one of these events is going to be very unique. None of them will be doing the same things. They will have an educational aspect to them, certainly, with various displays. There will also be promotional aspect, and that there will be historical videos running on our video boards. Uh, opportunities for our fans to learn about the effort to develop the memorial in Pershing Park and the opportunity to donate and contribute to that effort. So lots of lots of different things going on in the ballparks, including the ever-popular uh, poppy seed distribution. Randy, something I've been curious about, how did an East Coast league wind up with the name International League? Well, that's a good question. The International League, this is our 134th consecutive year of operation. It's the oldest minor league baseball league in the country, and it's older than actually the American League at the major league level. But over the years, the International League has had various Canadian cities, Ottawa, Toronto, Winnipeg, Montreal. We actually were in Havana, Cuba, and had to leave in the middle of a season at Castro's overthrow. The team relocated out of Havana and uh, went to Jersey City, New Jersey in the middle of the 1960 season. So the short answer to your question is that back in its origins and since then, there were international teams in the league itself. Thank you, Randy. It's the American pastime. It's spring. The boys of summer are getting ready, and we thank you so much for your support. Uh, it's been our pleasure to be part of the effort. This leads directly into our first story in our updates from the states. This coming Sunday on May 21st in Louisville, Kentucky at Slugger Field, the Kentucky State and the National World War I Centennial Commissions are teaming up with the Louisville Bats. This is for a World War I Commemoration Day at the park. Heather French Henry was on KHAS Channel 11, the local ABC affiliate, earlier this week, where they spoke about the upcoming event at Slugger Field. And we're doing multiple events. We're helping to create awareness and education for young and old alike about World War I. It's really kind of a forgotten war. You know, people don't really learn much about it. But in this 100th um, anniversary, it's really become a great special project of ours here in the Commonwealth of Kentucky as well as around the United States. And uh, this weekend at the uh, Slugger Field with the Louisville Bats playing the Columbus Clippers is going to be the perfect time to have a military appreciation game centered around World War I. We do have a World War I commissioner, Terry 
Wade Hamby from Kentucky that serves on the national board. He's going to come down, throw a pitch. He's a Vietnam veteran, so I think that's great. And, that and look, it's baseball, so you got time to talk with your family. And it's important to learn about World War One because you have World War Two because the events that transpired in World War One. Okay, the Germans felt, you know, obviously everything translated into the Second World War from that one, right? That's right. The reasons that you talk about Syria today with chemical warfare are because laws that were passed during after World War One have said you can't use these chemicals on people. This is now relevant today. This is a topic that's relevant today. It's very relevant. People don't realize how relevant the issues that we went through in World War One are to now. Mm -hmm. You're exactly right. Chemical warfare got its start, and at State Fair, we'll actually have some of those weapons of war and some of those uh, items and artifacts to show people. And so that's why the you know, the baseball game is going to be so important, sort of a prelude into right. what some of our anniversary events will be. But it's a great fun way. So and there's lots of activities. The superstars are going to be gonna there. Say, very there's family a, friendly, right? Yes. There's a, a great concert after the ball game. So we anticipate hopefully beautiful weather. This Sunday, the gates at Slugger Field open at one o'clock for the recognition of the World War One Centennial. Then the Louisville Bats play the Columbus Clippers. That happens at 2.05. In North Carolina, red poppies are blooming along the highways in commemoration of the 100th anniversary of our nation's entry into World War I. To help honor those who served, North Carolina's Department of Transportation Roadside Environmental Unit planted an additional 70 acres of red poppies. The poppies are part of the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission's nationwide effort to raise awareness and give meaning to the events that took place 100 years ago. The North Carolina Department of Transportation spoke to their native son and National World War I Centennial Commissioner, Jerry Hester. Here's a clip. We want to honor those who have served and do it in a way that's dignified as well as beautiful and evoking the questions that people ask why the poppy. It is to honor our servicemen and women, not only in North Carolina, but all over. And we have had many international visitors who come and see these poppies and remark and relate to us. Uh, we have never seen anything like this in any country in the world. For more information on these stories, visit ncdot.gov. In our education update section, we have a story from Texas. Professor Teresa Van Hoy's class at St. Mary's University in San Antonio has been given an incredible opportunity to connect with the legacy of World War I. With the support of World War I Centennial Commissioner General Alfredo Valenzuela, Van Hoy guides her students to research, write, and produce a series of mini-documentaries about the war. The students get to choose a topic of interest to them, allowing for their voice and perspective to enter the work. The last batch of documentaries will be ceremoniously published online on the centennial of Armistice Day, November 11, 2018, at 11.11 11 a.m. But you don't have to wait till then to check out these great mini-docs. You can watch them now on YouTube. Just follow the link in the podcast notes. As a matter of fact, I watched a four-minute student piece that was just published yesterday called Shell Shock with actual footage of World War I soldiers in post-traumatic states. It's pretty powerful. Thank you, Professor Van Hoy, for putting this program together. It's really awesome. And in a related story from our international report from India, a story about post-war recovery and healing with the power of embroidery. In this story about World War I soldiers who, reluctantly at first, embraced embroidery as a therapy, 
Also known as fancy work, embroidery was widely used as a form of therapy for British and Anzac soldiers wounded in the war, challenging the gendered construct of it as women's work. Themes of the soldiers' embroidery range from military heraldry to scenes from French countrysides to pieces for their sweethearts. You can read more about some of the individuals who benefited from embroidery and see some of their embroidered pieces by following the link in the podcast notes. On to spotlight in the media. In Los Angeles, playwright Rajiv Joseph has staged and opened a new play about World War I called Archduke. Commissioned by the Center Theater Group on the occasion of their 50th anniversary, Joseph's slyly relevant new period dramedy ends where most accounts of World War I begin, with the death of Austro-Hungarian heir Archduke Ferdinand. The play runs from April 25th to June 4th. You can purchase tickets as well as read a review of the play by following the link in the podcast notes. National Geographic Television will air their special, America's Great War 1917-1918, to on Sunday, May 28th at 9 p.m. and on Monday, May 29th at 10.50 p.m. Their press release states, Through unreleased archives and contemporary footage shot in the archaeological digs of World War I's battlefields, the show will tell the heroic and tragic tale of the American soldiers who participated in the conflict. Thank you, Nat Geo TV, for producing this wonderful work. We look forward to it in time for Memorial Day. And now for some articles and posts you'll find on the World War I Centennial Commission's rapidly growing website. One of the sites you'll find is for the 369th Experience. This is a project endorsed by the World War I Centennial Commission and sponsored in part by the Coca-Cola Foundation. The project recreates the Harlem Hellfighters 369th Regimental Band. The band originally consisted of 65 African-American and Puerto Rican doughboys who charmed the hearts and the minds of Americans and Europeans alike. It's said that they brought jazz to Europe. Beginning last November, the program solicited freshman and sophomore music students from historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, and other colleges and universities across America to enter a competition to be selected to join a recreation of the 369th band. The band members have now been selected, and this past week it was announced that Dr. Israe Butler will lead the band as they retrace the steps of the original 369th with performances at centennial celebrations in New York City, Brest and Paris in France, and a host of other historic locales. Dr. Butler is currently the director of bands at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. To learn more about the program, you can go to www.cc.org slash 369 or follow the link in the podcast notes. This week in our Write blog, which explores World War I's influence on contemporary writing and scholarship, the post is titled Censored World War I Works Part 2. In the post, Write blog curator Jennifer Orth Vaillon discusses two censored yet extraordinary works by Army nurses, Ellen Lamott's The Backwash of War and Mary Borden's The Forbidden Zone. Both Mary Borden and Ellen Lamott were field hospital nurses who witnessed some of World War I's worst casualties and went on to write about the experiences. 
The Post discusses how many artistic works were censored after World War I because they seemingly portrayed the conflict or the countries involved in a negative light. Today, many of these previously censored works are considered among the best artistic representations of the war, in part because of the realistic way they painted the horrible, gory, corrupt, and anti-triumphant picture of the war, not just the glory. Read more about these women and their literary contributions at www.cc.org slash W-W-R-I-T-E, all lowercase. For the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project, the $200,000 matching grant challenge for restoring ailing World War I memorials around the country, there is a new blog post this week profiling some of the recent grant applications for the program, one from Santa Monica, California, and another from Tennessee's Madison County. Most important, a reminder for anyone involved in a World War I memorial restoration project, large or small. It's just one month until the submission deadline on June 15, 2017. You can follow the program and sign up for the blog at www.cc.org slash 100 memorials. That brings us to The Buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what do you have for us this week? Hi, Teo. Last week, we talked a bit about Mother's Day, which was this past Sunday. This week, we shared an image from the American Experience social media feed. It's an illustration of a doughboy sitting atop a trench, his rifle and bayonet set aside as he writes a letter. The slight smile on his face and the thought bubble of an older woman, every hair in place and a steady, firm look on her face, lets us know that he's writing home to his mother. The best part about this image is the accompanying quote from a dispatch from the War Work Council on Mother's Day, 1918. Quote, there is not an American soldier in France, even in the front lines with a mother at home who isn't writing to her today. Never again will the French believe that baseball is our greatest national institution. They'll think that mothers are. Last but not least this week, a great post from a Facebook page we enjoy following, The Great War, 1914 to 1918, The Rage of Men. This Facebook page often posts informative content summarizing events and people involved in the war. Full warning though, they do not censor graphic images. The post I wanted to direct you towards doesn't contain anything too difficult, however. It's a wonderful short summary of the life of General Pershing. A hundred years ago this week, he was notified that he would lead the American Expeditionary Forces to Europe. The post includes his biographical history leading up to and past the war, as well as some wonderful photos of the general, including a few of him as a boy. Check it out via the link in the podcast notes. And that's World War I Centennial News for this week. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, Randy Mobley, president of the International League, Catherine Akey, the Commission's social media director and also the line producer for the show, and I'm Teo Mayer, your host this week. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And as you heard earlier, we've received approval on our design for a national World War I memorial in Washington, D.C. We're not federally funded. We depend entirely on donations for doing this work. And you can help by donating any amount at www.cc.org donate. 
You can also help us with peer-to-peer fundraising by posting the donation appeal videos from www.cc.org promotion. And if you're listening to the podcast on a smartphone, you can just text WW1 to 41444. That's WW1 to 41444 to make a donation large or small. We want to thank the commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. This podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org cn, on iTunes and Google Play at WW1 Centennial News. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thanks for joining us and don't forget to talk to somebody about the centennial of World War I this week. So long. <laughs>